My name is Hal Brady. Let me welcome you to this ministry. Tonight I want to do something a little different. I want to share with you something that took place not long ago at Fernbank. If you're aware of the museum in Atlanta, you know that for the past couple of months they've been showing Jerusalem, a film by the National Geographic. One of those Sunday afternoons, Hal Brady Ministries bought out the theater, and after the showing, we went upstairs and I made a talk to the people who had gathered. I thought it was a very important talk, and I still think it's a very important talk, and I want to share it with you now. Now, I don't have one scripture. This message is not based on a single scripture, but I want to read to you several places in the Bible just for your consideration. First of all, hear the word. It comes out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then there's Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. Hear these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And as you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I want to read from Genesis chapter 21, beginning here at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with a son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do it as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. And then I want us to hear Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You'll notice those three scriptures concerning Abraham had to do with the Israelites, it had to do with the Muslims, and it had to do with the Christians. Now I'd like to read one other passage from you. It, it comes from 1 Corinthians 13, well-known verses. 
For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. And then this verse, Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let us pray. Oh God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. And thank you, oh God, that we can gather and think about important, significant issues. We are grateful, oh God, for you most of all in your guidance and your love. It's in your name. Amen. My wife and I have been to Jerusalem two different times. The first time we went was 1974. And we went with 400 people from Georgia to a World Evangelism Conference that was held in Jerusalem. We flew into Tel Aviv. We got right off the plane, boarded the buses, and went right to the conference in Jerusalem. Now that conference had some of the finest speakers in the world. But the only thing I remember about the conference was waking up at the applause at the end of a speaker's speech. We would hear the speaker introduced, and then we would sleep through his message until the applause would wake us up. You see, we were suffering from jet lag. None of us could possibly stay awake. But after we regrouped and after we got some rest, the rest of the trip was meaningful and inspirational. It was such a marvelous thing. I'll never forget the first time I saw the old walls of the old city, the Western Wall. It truly touched me and inspired me. I'll also remember putting my prayers into the Western Wall, praying for the centuries. Those prayers are folded sheets of paper that are just stuck in the crevices of that wall. It's most inspirational. The second time my wife and I went to the Holy Land was in early 2000s. We went again with the uh, Methodist Council Executive Committee. There we stayed in a monastery. That monastery was located right off one of the old walls of the city. And it was quite inspirational being there that time. We visited the, the Gold Dome of the Rock. We visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And we visited many other places. But it was just so thrilling to walk where Jesus walked. It was absolutely an amazing occasion. Now the message I want to bring tonight has been spawned by four considerations. First of all, the condition of the world. The condition of the world and the hope for the world. That's first. Secondly, God's will for humankind. What does God really want for humankind? And then thirdly, my study of Christianity and the other world religions. And then fourthly, this movie, Jerusalem. Particularly the last scene in that movie where we had three young women of faith, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. And they all said at the end of the movie how important it should be that we work together, that we listen to one another and work together. And they said we have more in common than we do differences. Now, all of us awakened this morning to a world where Christians, Jews, and Muslims and the adherents of many, many other faiths are trying to kill each other. As a matter of fact, they're planning to kill each other, and they're doing it out of a message of being obedient to God, as they say, and doing something pleasing to God. Finger-pointing is the name of the game with all of these religions in the world today, but no matter who is the greatest perpetrator, all of us have opportunity to share in this momentous moment in the world's history. And we also have opportunity to try to make this world better by working together. Brian McLaren 
author, activist, and also a public theologian, has written a book called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Mohammed Cross the Road? In that book, he was talking about the hostility of the world, and he was also talking about how to make this hostility into solidarity. The question is, how can we come more in line with solidarity than hostility in the world? Such an important, important question. And if that solidarity is to happen, according to McLaren, then these religions are going to have to listen to one another and work together to make this world a better place. McLaren writes these words, and I think they're worth hearing, so would you please listen. Our varied histories have brought us to a crossroads. We can stand our ground here on our opposite corners and defend, it and defend the frigid distances between us. We can cross the road. That's an option. With outstretched hands, smiling faces, and open hearts, we can move toward one another, meet in the middle, and walk side by side beyond the limits of our old, suspicious, segregated places. We can reject the mutual hostility of this world and as we have defined ourselves. And then later he said, it's either going to be human kindness or human extinction. And I'm afraid he's right. Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn put it like this. He said, until there is peace among the religions, there will be no peace in the world. Now, according to the latest data, these are the statistics of our world. There are approximately six billion people living in the world. Six billion. Of those six billion, two billion are Christians. Two billion are Christians. 1.3 billion are Muslims. 900 million are Hindus. 360 million, and it goes on and on, are Buddhists. And then the Jewish faith claims 14 million people. Now, I want you to notice that all five of these religions taken together, they amount to 4.5 billion people in the world. More than two-thirds of the world's population are religious people. Thus, Hans Kuhn's message is just right. Until there is peace among the religions, there will be no peace in the world. At a party, a minister was asked what he did. He said, well, he used to be an English teacher. And then he said, I was a pastor for 24 years. He said, now, he said, I'm a writer, a speaker, and an activist. The other person said, well, what do you write and speak and activate on nowadays? He said, among other things, he said, I try to keep religious people from killing each other or planning to kill each other. And the other man looked at him and he said, you know, I'm not a religious person. He said, I'm more an agnostic. But he said, I just want to say, God bless you. Do you hear that? A non-religious person saying, God bless you, because he believes that he's talking about the realities of our world. So what keeps us Christians from having dialogue with other religions? First of all, fear. Fear. Fear is the chief culprit that often spoils good religion and turns it into bad religion. Somehow or another, we feel better if everybody looks like us, thinks like us, behaves like us, and believes like us. We tend to think there's more peace that way. Fear causes people to be rejected. Now, one of the best things we did shortly after 9-11 in the last church I served, we asked a Muslim speaker to come and speak to our church. It certainly eased fears 
and it certainly helped us to better understand one another. Another thing that keeps us from dialoguing with other people is arrogance. Arrogance is based on a false sense of certainty that we alone have received the truth. That kind of conviction patronizes others as less enlightened. Perhaps we can, can learn something from Flannery O'Connor. This is what she says, very important. Don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. Did you hear that? Don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. So what does it mean to be a Christian in a multi-faith world? Is it possible to be faithful to the Christian cause and also to be charitable toward other religions? Here I think Archbishop Desmond Tutu has a helpful word for us. First of all, he started talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said it's very interesting that he never named the victim. That victim could be male, female, friend, foe, or anybody else. In other words, he was not going to give a simplistic answer to a complex problem. And also, that parable is more about how to be neighborly than it is to define who is our neighbor. But I want you to go on and hear what he says. The archbishop then makes this point, that the accidents of birth and geography determine to a very large extent to what faith we belong. The chances are if we were born in Pakistan, we would be Muslim. The chances are if we were born in India, we would be Hindu. The chances are if we were born in Japan, we would be Shintoist. The chances are if we were born in the United States, we are Christian. 77% of our people in this country call themselves Christian. The next largest percent is 15% say that they're nothing at all. And then the others have less percentages. But if we were born in the United States, we tend to be Christian. Now, it could be that we would basically be what we question if we were born there rather than here. Another thing the Archbishop says is not to insult the adherents of other faiths by suggesting that these adherents are really Christians and don't know it. We must acknowledge them for who they are. And we must acknowledge with integrity their conscientiously held beliefs. These people are valuable. Now, we Christians must defend our own faith to ourselves tenaciously. We must stand for our faith, and we must not say that all religions are the same, because they are not. But when we acknowledge and respect other people, it shows that we are respecting these people with their faith, and that we want to work with them in the world. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I used an illustration of E. Stanley Jones. I want to use that again because it speaks so marvelously here. E. Stanley Jones was a professor at Asbury Seminary before he was a missionary to India. While he was in India, he met Gandhi. A couple of years later, he wrote a biography about Gandhi that had such an effect upon Martin Luther King, Jr. that it caused him to commit himself to nonviolence in the civil rights movement. Well, the situation between Gandhi and religion of Christians is a long and complex situation. As you know, Gandhi never accepted the Christian religion, but he loved Jesus Christ and he wanted the Indian culture to be exposed to what Christ had to offer. When Jones asked him how that was to be, Gandhi gave these four suggestions. First of all, he said that I would suggest, first of all, that all of you Christians, missionaries, and everybody else 
begin to live more like Jesus Christ. Jones said he could have really said nothing else. That was enough. Secondly, Gandhi said, I would suggest that you must practice your religion without adulterating or toning it down. Hear me now. A mild form of Christianity does absolutely no good for this world. A mild form of Christianity does no good for this world. Third, Gandhi stated, I would suggest that you put your emphasis upon love, for love is the centrality and the center of the Christian faith, and there is no doubt about that. We're not talking about love as sentiment. We're talking about love as a working force between individuals and groups and nations and also throughout the world. Fourthly, Gandhi said, I would suggest that you study other world religions so that you'll learn how to be more sympathetic with the people that are in the world. And then Gandhi made this statement, Christian identity in a multi-faith world must be marked first and foremost by Christ's likeness. So where does, where does this dialogue begin between differing faiths? First of all, it begins with listening. I like the story of the young boy that escorted his girl to the door, and he said to her, may I kiss you? She didn't say anything. He said, may I kiss you? She didn't say anything. He said, are you deaf? She said, no, are you paralyzed? What she was saying was that you're not listening. You're not hearing. Now, someone said that the reason we have two ears and one mouth is because we're supposed to listen twice as much as we talk. Could be that is true. Listening, however, does not mean capitulating to somebody else's faith. What listening means is we respect another person in order to listen to that person, and we can probably sharpen our own beliefs by understanding the beliefs of other people. And then secondly, acknowledging that God is greater than any of our claims on God is another beginning point of dialogue. R. Kirby Godsey, former president of Mercer University, has written a book called, Is God a Christian? He said, I believe that a good place to begin our conversations as communities of faith is to acknowledge that God is greater than any of our claims on God. God is not the possession of Christians or Jews or Muslims, not the possession of Hindus or Buddhists or Confucians. God is greater than all our gods. God is the ground that makes all these other gods possible. Dr. Godsey goes on and lists seven things that we can do to create dialogue with people of other faiths and world religions. And this would be a good idea for us to do at the local level. Number one, we all have a story. We all have a story. Each of our religions has a remarkable story to tell, and we could listen to one another tell those stories. Secondly, for each religion, life cannot be defined solely by the boundaries of life and death. Each religion has something that it tells us about the significance and importance of life and the purpose for which we're here. Third, the struggles to cope with pain and suffering. Every religion deals with pain and suffering. How do you account for it? That's the question that all religions ask. Fourthly, each world religion is characterized by sacred places, holy moments, and sacred literature. The call of Abraham was a sacred moment. The baptism of Jesus was a sacred moment. The enlightenment of Buddha was a sacred moment. The recitation of the word of God to Mohammed in terms of the Koran was a sacred moment. Obeying God is a sacred moment. And then five, the crippling partisanships that distorts our faith. Every one of our faiths has an extremist element in it that causes the main part of the faith 
to take a hard knock. Six, a sixth way we could discuss things among each other is compassion. The best insights of every religion has to do with compassion. When we're kind to other people, that's significant. And finally, all our faiths provide their followers with a pathway of hope. It may be salvation, liberation, enlightenment. It may be reincarnation, whatever it is. All our religions provide a pathway of hope to our people. Now, let me say this to you. I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. The reasons, a few of the reasons, are these. A compelling picture of God, painted by Jesus Christ himself. Secondly, the accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the Bible, the eyewitness accounts. Thirdly, the redemptive power of the cross. Fourth, the centrality of love, the emphasis on love. And six, the experience of Christ. This anonymous author expressed it for me when he said, I had walked life's way with an easy tread, had followed where comforts and pleasures led, until that day in a quiet place I met the master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for my goal, much thought for my body but none for my soul, I had entered to win in life's mad race when I met the master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes of sorrow were fixed on me. And I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away. And then he goes on and puts it this way. Melting and vanished and in their place, naught else did I see but the master's face. And he said, I said, oh, make me meek to follow the steps of thy wounded feet. My thought is now for the souls of men. I've lost my life to find it again. Ere since one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. To be sure, I believe in Jesus Christ. But I also believe God is calling us to do something about the hostility in the world and to try to get this world into a more solidarity one with the other. And if that's going to happen, people of faith are going to have to listen to one another and they're going to have to work with one another. I believe Brian McLaren was right when he said, either it's going to be human kindness or human extinction. Let us pray. Oh God, how thankful we are that you call us to be your people in every way. You call us to work together, to be friends, and to try to make things better in the world. We ask your guidance upon our leaders that you will bless them and sustain them as they seek to work for peace. We thank you again for this day and this time together. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. I trust that this message and music have been a blessing. God bless. Have a good evening. Good night. Oh,